Welcome to another exciting episode of The Nuclear View, a weekly podcast of the National Institute for Deterrent Studies, where we want to advance peace, promote stability, and remind you to think deterrence. The views of the guests are their own. Well, it's another great day here on The Nuclear View. Of course, I am Adam Lowther. Today we have with us Jim Petrosky and Curtis McGiffin, the original trio of malcontents, I suppose. And today we're going to talk about a great article that just came out in the brand new foreign affairs. Uh, You know, it's funny. You sent me the electronic version of the article, Curtis, but a day later I got my copy of foreign affairs. So the article is called China is ready for a world of disorder. America is not. And if you read the article, it makes some great points. Curtis, do you want to give us a quick overview? Well, thank you, Adam. And Jim, it's good to see you. Uh, we missed you last week. Um, you know, this was my- I heard you had fun, we though. Did. We did. We did. And, uh, um, but, you know, uh, uh, it's always a pleasure to have Peter Husey on. Uh, and, uh, but, you know, n- never at the expense of, of, of you. So, uh, but, but in any case, uh, here we go. So it's another great week. Um, you know, the, the crux of this article, uh, and why I found it so interesting was it really sort of laid out, um, at least the author, uh, Mark Leonard, uh, in his perspective on where China is, is going and why. And I have never heard it as succinctly told as he did. Now, as I printed it out, because, you know, was nine pages, uh, you know, which is which is right at at Adam's maximum length. Uh, but I wanted to test him <laughs> and get him in, engaged here. No, uh, what I thought was interesting here, uh, you know, and again, it, is that China is is really doing a whole bunch of different things that is really seeking disorder. So they are they're they're. I think what they're really trying to do is realign the world in a non-aligned fashion. And I think this is what our author here is talking about today. And, uh, and we'll talk about how that plays in the, in the nuclear deterrence role. But we know that China has been engaged in, in a lot of things here. And we'll go through this article, I'm sure, piece by piece. But I, you know, I just want to remind, we talk about the chaos of what's been going on in our world, right? COVID starts in, in early 2020. Um, you know, arguably from, from, you know, of, of, of Wuhan, uh, origins, we have, uh, missile tests. We have the threat to Taiwan. We have Chinese spy balloons, uh, flying over the United States, uh, satellite lasers scanning the, uh, Hawaiian islands. We now have accusations of training base, Chinese training bases in Cuba, uh, we've seen open nuclear threats to Japan um, and, and other statements of belligerence uh, and, um, and, you know, technology with hypersonic glide vehicles and fractional orbit, orbital bombardment systems, uh, cyber stuff. Uh, I mean, you name it. And it is a chaotic world. And, uh, and so uh, to, to this author's premise... Um, this is what 
China may be looking for. I think they realize in, in, in here that they can't al- realign the world to follow them. And so the next best thing is just to ensure that the world doesn't remain aligned in the traditional rules-based order that follows the United States. And that in itself is a victory. And so, um, and, and all of this, of course, feeds into the ultimate question of Taiwan and how that question, how the Taiwan question gets answered over the next one, two, three, four, five years. Uh, depending upon who's prognosticating uh, when deterrence might fail uh, in the uh, East China Sea. So I'm going to stop there, Adam, and throw it back over to you. And and you tell me, you're you're the international scientist, uh, international relations scientist. Tell me what I missed. Well, you know, it it does. He actually makes some really good points. And the, the idea that China, Russia, and North Korea essentially want the Western-designed and Western-led international system, that they want that toppled, and that they're, they recognize the Chinese, that they're never going to build, they, don't, they can't, they're not even trying to build a new alliance system. They have, you know, one ally, that's North Korea. And they they recognize that they're not going to build alliances with Japan and South Korea, and that's just never going to happen. So therefore, what they want is a multipolar world, and they want a multipolar world where they dominate Asia, and they have the freedom of action across the globe. And essentially, they recognize that the U.S. is going to try to bandwagon and is going to try to build... Uh, you know, bring allies and partners. You see AUKUS, uh, Australia, UK, uh, United States with the submarine deal. You see the Quad with Australia, Japan, the United States, and India. You see, you know, there's discussions in the United States. Do we need a new a NATO for East Asia? So we're looking at at an alliance structures and how do we counter and balance China with alliances. And the the Chinese, according to Leonard, you know, the Chinese, they're, they're not going to, you know, try to build an alternative. They essentially want to hamstring the United States through the Belt and Road Initiative, through a number of their efforts, and to peel off those who might bandwagon against them. And that's really, you know, and, and there's a guy, uh, what's his name, Zihan, who, who built or wrote a book. Uh, I'm trying to think what it's called, but the end of the world is just the beginning. Now he's not, you know, he's got some good ideas. Some of them are right, some of them are wrong, but they at least make you think. And one of the things he says is, well, what happens if we're we see deglobalization? Because this whole and this was a you know, one of the things that COVID really did for us is that we got to see what happens when just-in-time manufacturing breaks down. Because that's what we've built. You know, we built a global system of just-in-time manufacturing. We built a system built on sea trade because sea trade is so cheap. And what happens if, if you can't transport, you know, every kind of good anywhere in the world from one place to another because We've deglobalized because there are regional powers and they don't let things happen. And that's, you know, sort of what 
what China wants. China wants to sort of break this apart because if it stays as it is, they lose and we win. So they need the system to be more chaotic. Jim. Yeah, Adam, then Curtis, thanks. And thanks for welcoming me back. I didn't realize I was being replaced last week. <laughs> I just thought I couldn't make it, but that's okay. Um, but uh, yeah, so I read this article. I was fascinated by it. I've given a lot of thought, uh, new thought to it because it's sort of a new idea to me, although it took me back to something I learned in, uh, and I know everyone knows I'm you know, Army background, but I went to the Air Command and Staff College. And one of the international politics uh, studies that we had has stuck with me for years, and it fits here. And that is, uh, you know, conflicts don't arise because of how you think of yourself or how you th- how your adversary thinks of yourself, but it's how you think your adversary thinks of yourself. I, I know that, you know, really broad, but it really is true. And what we're seeing here is that China sees it's, uh, you know, chi- we look at China and think that they want the same thing that we want. And this article sort of upsets that. And I like that because I do believe that it sort of fits the narrative that you see uh, in terms of Chinese uh, uh, national power and how they're applying it globally. Um, but I also want to quote another great philosopher, the great Adam Lowther, who said that almost all adversarial relationships have to do with economy. And I think this is uh, where the new strategy may or may not exist. Because as you look at, a, if you look at an unstructured world, some things fall apart. And economies can fall apart very easily when they don't mesh, when they don't match. And unless you have a dominant authoritarian driver, sort of like English were when they were colonizing, they drove everybody to use their own currency and their own, their, you know, and, and to, to build for their needs. You have the same problem here in, uh, in, in mixing things up in China. And so I'd be very interested in seeing how that falls into play in terms of a strategy the United States may have, which may be extremely economic. Because there's one thing the Chinese, at least presently, are dependent upon, and that's our grand desire for commodities, all kinds of commodities. It fuels China. It fuels their, their regime. It fuels their their people. It fuels everything in China. Because they couldn't rely on Russia to buy all their goods. They can't rely pretty much on anyone else. We're the number one feeder. And I'd like to see how that fits into the overall strategy we may have. But I do think that, you know, we look at order. We look at a a common base of understanding with our allies and our trading partners in at least one fashion. But having a non-conformant trading relationship is very difficult to manage. And it's, it's almost like having two different languages. You know, recently someone told me that, well, there are no rules in, in any of this. Well, if there are no rules in anything, if that's a, you know, that's the, uh, a, a direction we're going, if there were no rules in language, how would we ever communicate? If there are no rules in economics, how will we ever trade? If there are no rules in, you know, any, any major uh, operation, how will we exist? And I, I don't find that coexistence very good. So I think it always leads, you know, chaos leads to the, you know, we'll, we'll pull itself out of chaos because someone's going to take the lead. The question is who's going to be the lead. 
thoughts on yeah, that? Yeah, so let me add to that. You know, I think this is the this is the geopolitical equivalent to that famous movie from the 1970s and the name escapes me uh it's not, must not be that famous right uh where it says i'm mad as hell and i'm not going to take it anymore right so china is essentially uh mad as hell and they are not going to take it anymore in the sense that they don't like and they are now actively rejecting right the r- international rules-based order that was born of the western allies uh post-world war ii and and so now we're starting to see some of of the um, rules of thumb, if you will, to be uh, to start to be overruled, in a sense. One of them is, is hey, nations that trade with one another don't go to war. Well, I'm not sure that we're actually seeing this. When when uh, when during the Cold War, the U.S. and Russia spent about they, they the trade between the U.S. and the Soviet Union was about one percent of the GDP. Today, the trade between the uh, the U.S. and China and the U.S. allies in China are about 16%. So we are essentially spending money uh, to build this adversary, uh, to, to, to arm this adversary. An adversary that doesn't believe in alliances, that feels that alliances cannot guarantee uh, independence or sovereignty or security. And... Um, uh, and, and doesn't lay a whole lot of stock, I think, in multilateral institutions, even though it tries to play the game. It uses the UN when it when it when it benefits them, and it ignores uh, UN rulings and international courts and these sorts of things when that when it does not benefit them. And uh, so, uh, you know, the Chinese refer to this now as right the struggle for survival, uh, as as. Mr. Leonard notes in here in his piece, which I think is interesting because when you use language like that, that it is a struggle for survival, it is naturally defensive, naturally born of conflict. You want to interject, Jim? I, I want to interject with a question maybe uh, you or, or Adam had figured out, but who's threatening China's survival itself? I mean, we're I don't see that threat, at least in the no, international no. side. It's invented. Um, they may not be able to grow as fast as they want. Okay. Yeah, it's invented because here you're looking at China that, that has a largely pacified north, 700 miles of Gobi Desert to the west. You've got a the, the Himalayan mountains almost impassable to the south. Um, and, uh, and, and then the, and the rocky outcrops that run, you know, through the Vietnam borders that are still also very difficult to cross. And then, uh, you know, a highly populated, very guardable coastline, um, that is probably their, their softest point. Uh, and, and, and no one is interested in, in, uh, in attacking China, but this is what autocrats do, uh, or autocracies do, which is focus on your adversaries, even if you have to make them up, and uh, and that way you can galvanize your mission and uh, and 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 move out, so to speak. But this act of realism that we see in China, this behavior of realism, um, is is so abnormal to what America's idealism, uh, res- idealistic response, and from its idealism, it, it is just so different. And these rules based orders. Uh, you know, is an idealistic sense. Now, the challenge here is, is that America has had some questionable behavior with regard to how fair and uh, on all, all of these things are. And I think the world is still reeling from the invasion of Iraq in 2003 that 
that the that this is that that was no different than say the invasion of Ukraine or an eventual invasion of Taiwan. That uh, we're all guilty, and that it is all an issue of realism. And now we can all apply our sense of right and wrong. Uh, and I'm not going to dispute that or, or argue that today. But the point is, is that it presents to folks who want to see a level playing field uh, that opportunity. Uh, to see that level playing field justifying their actions, and then the creation of these of these of these straw man organizations like this Shanghai Cooperative Organization, which are mere attempts to sort of legitimize bad behavior internally, um, uh, seems to um, uh, be one of the many uh, focused facets of Chinese behavior in in the world today. Yeah, I mean it. I guess if if I can sort of, I'll play devil's advocate, all and you know make the Chinese case, and the, you know, the Chinese case is pretty simple. Hey, we are the second largest economy in the world. Uh, we are the largest nation in the world by population. Uh, we were mistreated by Western powers, and this, you know, what you call and a rules based order is really not a rules based order. It's an it's a rules for thee, but not for me based order because you, the Americans, when it's good to violate the rules, you violate the rules. You know, in Iraq is a great example or, you know, pick a few other places. And the idea is that, hey, you know, it's uh, this isn't what's best for us. What we want to do is we want to hamstring you so that you can't keep doing that. And, you know, the concern is that well, what happens when when your ire turns to us. Uh, so therefore, you know, we're going to build a larger nuclear arsenal. We're going to make sure that you can't get at us geographically. We're going to make sure that you can't use our minority populations, Tibetans, Uyghurs, you know, you name it against us. And we're going to build economic relationships. We're not going to tell people, you know, pick a country that, hey, you need to have, we're not going to tell devoutly Muslim countries or traditional countries, hey, you need to have more LGBTQIA plus rights, or you've got to do all these other things. We're not going to intervene in their domestic politics and morality. We're going to trade with them. We're going to get them to the point where the position they take is neutrality. That's what we want, neutrality or pro-Chinese. And there's good reason for it. And you, the Americans in the West, you know, you were the majority of, of global trade and wealth. You've declined by, you know, 25% over the last three or four decades. We, the East, are the future. And we want a seat at the table. And we want to be not just a seat at the table, but we want to be peers, if not the leading nation, like we, the Chinese, were for several thousand years. And, you know, it's not, it's not a completely false narrative. It's not untrue. It has some, you know, valid points. Uh, The United States has sort of violated the rules that it set for others. And that opens, you open yourself up for criticism when you do that. And that, you know, it's really what we've got to do. You know, we, the Americans, so I'm switching back put my American cap on again 
is we we've got to convince hey you the japanese the koreans the everybody in the region and others you know what american leadership looks like you know what hap- you know how the world looks when we're in charge do you think it's going to be better for you when the chinese are in charge because it's going to be one or the other so so pick because in the end it's never going to be a non-aligned movement that's that's sort of a you know it's a step from from here to there is non-alignment but then in the end it doesn't stay non-alignment and that's where i think we need to be convincing our friends in europe and elsewhere and and in reality uh, China is building a, they're building our dependence on them without their depend. This isn't a co-equal relationship. It's we're dependent upon them. They've made strategic investments in the things that we need, but they're not, you know, they're not building those uh, dependencies upon us or others. So that that's really what's going on. Adam, do you, but Adam, don't you think that there is a dependence there? Again, going back to my comment about economics, I, I think there is a dependence on on our nation's, you know, desire to, you know, purchase goods, develop, develop technologies, et cetera. I think China's building that within their university systems and 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 industrializing. And that is a that is a challenge to the United States that is really important. Um, so I, I would say there is some interdependence there. Um and also, I, I want to uh, say thanks for bringing up the, the view that, you know, we can make mistakes. And I think we have, in, in some cases, not following the rules. This is why we as a country have to choose leaders that understand these impacts and look further than, you know, unfortunately, look further than the next election cycle, that these things can matter in long terms. And so that's the other piece of this. And again, I believe that you know, China's using this to their advantage in a way that maybe we hadn't seen uh, uh, coming uh, for some time. And that's why I think this article is really a, an important piece. But I like to go back to any time when we see something happen. What should be our reaction? You know, that's the real important piece, because I don't think we can stop at least this movement. We can't undo the past. So what do we do for the future in terms of building an alignment with someone who we now, you know, our adversaries view of the adversary, they view us as being a rule breaker. Where do we view them as being aligned to, to meet our national interests? That's really the, the question that arises because you can't stop a sovereign nation unless you're you know, going to go to war with them or you're going to convince them otherwise. Thoughts? Well, I think that, uh, that the challenge here is, is that, how do we deal with today before we can even look at tomorrow? Um, China is not interested in negotiating. They're not interested in giving way. Um, this We've got a culture uh, of competition. Uh, we, we, we refer to them as competitors or pacing, pacing, pacing threats, but, uh, but competitors largely, uh, whereas uh, they don't see us necessarily as competitors. They see us as... Um, as obstructionists uh, into the, the goals that they want, that they want to do. And so they're doing the thing. So the premise of this article is, is that they're prepared to live in a world of disorder. I would argue that they're actually 
causing this world of disorder, that they are doing things to create the disorder, to break up the order before you can restack the order, right? A new order. And so, so they are, they are rushing uh, to do these things. And when we get into the security cycle of all of this, so I believe um, that the, the different, the, the delta between that space between competition and conflict is deterrence. The deterrence lies in between those two things. It, main, it, it helps to manage competition and prevent it from becoming conflict. And how wide that space is, is created by how robust your deterrence is. And robustness is weapons. It's numbers, Mr. Sullivan. It is, it is resolve and, and, and these sorts of things. Let's look at what China's doing in this question. So we know that since 2021, by the way, the middle of COVID, um, we know that, that China has undergone a, what the former commander of U.S. Stratcom, Admiral Richard called breathtaking uh, expansion of their nuclear capability. We know that they're building 120 missile silos out in the Yumen Desert site, 110 missile silos in Hami, another 90 in Yulin. That's 320 new missile silos. And then you add, uh, there's several more. Uh, when you add in all the ones they exist, they have that existing and their road mobiles, they're at about 450 launchers. They just recently reported uh, to Congress, Stratcom did, that, that China has more launcher capability uh, than America does uh, from its land assets. If you're putting um, uh, DF-41s in all of these missile silos, which have the capability of 10 Merving warheads, and they actually arm them all, you're, it, we're talking over 3,000 missiles, uh, missile warheads uh, pointed at presumably the adversaries of China, which would likely be at some point in time, uh, America. And we seem to not be willing to take this threat seriously. And we, and, and we've been ignoring, uh, for too long. We're still dithering about this thing today. Uh, they're talking about 700 warheads by 2030, 1500 warheads by, by 2035. Well, that's 12 years away. There are prognosticators right now who believe China already has um, a, a thousand plus warheads today. Um, and I would point you to uh, Rick Fisher's presentation to the AFA back in uh, 2021. It's a fantastic presentation. Uh, and so these are real issues. These are real problems. Why is China adding all of this nuclear capability? to deter its adversaries, to deter the United States. Uh, from what? Well, pre presumably from getting involved in Taiwan. It's to coerce America from getting involved in Taiwan or America's allies. And so, uh, you know, for those of you out there who are wondering when will the, uh, you know, when will deterrence fail and Taiwan be invaded? Uh, I would argue it's probably the day after the last missile goes on alert uh, in, in one of these silos and one of these three locations that I talked about. Um, so, you know, hopefully that we're monitoring those and, and when that happens, that's when you want to giddy up, uh, cause it's going to probably happen. Uh, and these are real issues. These are real challenges. And I didn't even talk about their submarine fleet, uh, and the capability that they have and, and are, and are hoping to have in the future. How are they funding all of this? Right. We're trading with our adversary. 
We are investing capital into our adversary. We're letting our adversary buy American farmland. We are doing things that are antithetical um, to uh, to real defensive postures and deterrent postures. Um, and I would argue uh, how much of Chinese farmland is America are, are, is American owned. Uh, you know, I would, uh, I, I don't believe it's one hectare. And so um, these are real challenges and there is a, there is a sense of purpose and, and, and fear in, in China um, their, their economy is beginning to go down. I think they only had a 3% GDP last year. That's terrible in their minds. The, and the demographic is failing them. 50, about 30 to 50 more males than females. And of the females in China, uh, only, only uh, or 40% are refusing to get the birthing permits. They don't want children. This is a real demographic problem. There are some uh, demographers out there who are predicting that by 2100, China's population will be 480-ish million people. Guess how many people America will have by 2100? About 480 million-ish. And this is a real concern for China. They, If they're going to get things done, if they're going to change the world, it needs to happen sooner rather than later. Well, thanks for that, Curtis. If I were going to do something, I'll tell you what I'd do. The first thing I would do is I would no longer allow uh, Chinese students, Chinese national students into U.S. universities, unless they go to humanities and social science programs. I wouldn't let them go to any of our advanced technical or scientific programs. Uh, That's one thing I'd do. I would stop letting them work in in U.S. companies because the Thousand Talents program is a highly effective yeah. espionage, industrial espionage program. I mean, they here's the thing: that they don't need their students to graduate from our programs anymore. They've already captured the information they need. Their schools yep. are just as good as ours. in In the nuclear field, in fact, some of their the work they've done is beyond the work we're doing. So they're highly competent and capable, but they're doing it because it's a way to capture, capture the latest advancements. That's what I, that's right. number one. Number two, yeah. Chinese cannot own land in China. They, you know, they have the right to use it, but they can't own it. So I would not allow any Chinese asset owning in the United States. And what I would do is I would think about this like you thought about the Cold War in the sense that we did not build dependencies. We, we didn't allow, you know, millions and millions of Soviet citizens to infiltrate the United States and go everywhere and do everything because we knew it was a risk. China, China's an adversary. They're not a competitor. They're an adversary. They know that. We seem to be the only ones who, because we're on top, we we don't seem to be willing to understand that uh, that somebody wants to knock us off that pedestal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but but we need to think of it. I mean, Americans are sports loving people, and every year there's a Super Bowl, a World Series, a NBA Finals, uh, and and the team that's on top on one year usually loses the next time around. And we need to understand that this is is like a major sporting event where they, you know, others like the Russians, the 
Chinese, the North Korean, you name it. They want to knock us off. And we can't just sit here and think we're always going to be on top. And we need to, you know, create a set of rules that is akin to the rules that we play by when we deal with the Chinese. I'll stop there, Jim. You know, we're out of time, but I'm going to, Jim, won't you take the last word? Yep. Um, well, I appreciate that. And uh, I, I think this is uh, for our listeners. I think it's something that is worth uh, put some thought into uh, and, uh, and and reflecting on these articles. If you haven't seen them, uh, I want to go back and uh, to, to Curtis's last comments and say, Curtis, I really appreciate you wrapping this back to the importance of deterrence and how it can help you devise a strategy for, you know, keeping your adversary at bay and for understanding how you can uh, control the situation that, that you're being handed. And I believe that we're getting to the point where we may not be able to control it. And so we have to look at our posture and manufacture change, you know, uh, strategize so that we are meeting the problem of the day and not last year's or last century's or last decade's problem. And this is new. This is a new place for the United States, but we are always up to the challenge. We have smart people. We have smart, you know, we have smart people. We have capable uh, systems. We have a country that's worth uh, investing ourselves into to make it work right. And that's what we need to remember that we're doing uh, as we move this, uh, as, as we move forward in this uh, adversarial relationship with the Chinese. And so with that, I think uh, we'll turn it back to Adam to close us. Well, guys, it's uh, always good to talk about, uh, you know, the People's Republic of China, the Chinese <laughs> Communist Party and their aspirational goals. I mean, it gives us a sense of purpose because we get to discuss you know, why we do what we do and why deterrence is important. And, you know, it, it also gives listeners a little bit of a chance to sort of move beyond our normal topic of discussion, which is, I always enjoy it. But unfortunately, we are out of time. And of course, I want to thank Jim and Curtis for joining us again today and thank the listeners who patiently uh, listen to us ramble on about our views on these topics and thanks for bearing with us and hopefully it's enjoyable maybe you learn something we try every week and thanks for listening to another episode of the nuclear view where at the national institutes for deterrence studies we always encourage you to think deterrence thank you for listening to this week's the nuclear view we hope you found it engaging and valuable. The Nuclear View is released each Wednesday and is a production of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, a 501c3 organization. We are dependent upon donations to provide our podcasts. Every donation helps keep this and many other deterrence-related activities happening and helps to bring about awareness of the peacekeeping value of U.S. strength and of our national deterrence. We occasionally answer questions from our valued listeners. If you wish to send us questions on a topic, please send your email to asknids at thinkdeterrence.com. That's asknids, one word, the at symbol, and thinkdeterrence, one word, dot com. If you enjoyed this show, check out our other weekly podcast, Nuclear Knowledge. 
You can catch all of our podcasts at thinkdeterrence.com under the Deterrence Podcast tab. We thank our producer, Kimberly Charrington, our sponsors, and all the fantastic members of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies for making this podcast possible. Stay tuned next week for another exciting and informative nuclear view, where we want to advance peace, promote stability, and remind you to always think deterrence.